worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. It's Heather here. Thanks for tuning in. We had such a blast recording episode seven, our case discussion on cardiac amyloidosis. If you haven't already, check it out. It lays the groundwork for episode eight's deeper dive in this pulse check as Amit and his co-fellow, Dr. Zach Iljovene, learn more about multimodality imaging from Dr. Paul Kremer at the Cleveland Clinic. On their way to Dr. Kremer's office, they randomly <laughs> run into a senior co-fellow, Dr. Owen Donnellan, and discuss some incredible fellow research related to cardiac amyloid from an electrophysiologic perspective. Now, I know that you're on the edge of your seats to learn more, but just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. Welcome back, cardio nerds. Amit here. Today, I am very excited to learn more about advanced multimodality imaging for cardiac amyloid in this pulse check with cardiovascular imaging expert, Dr. Paul Kremer. Joining me is my good friend and absolute star co-fellow, Dr. Zachary Iljovine. Zach earned his medical degree at Wright State University, after which he completed internal medicine training at Duke. With his interests in cardiac critical care and advanced heart failure, He's doing some really cool research related to mechanical circulatory support in cardiogenic shock. And I am very hopeful that Zach will choose to stay here at the Cleveland Clinic for Advanced Heart Failure Fellowship so that I can keep bugging him for help for years to come. Thanks, Amit. Uh, so glad to be here. I'm also really excited to get Dr. Kremer's take on how to rationally use different imaging modalities and helping parse out uh, some of those tricky parts of cardiac amyloid. Hey, wait, is that Owen? Gentlemen, how are you? Dr. Owen Donnellan, so good to see you. You know, we were actually on our way to learn more about cardiac amyloid from Dr. Kremer. But hey, as an aspiring electrophysiologist, you've done some really cool research looking into the EP ramifications of this disorder. Back in our episode number seven, the cardiac amyloid case discussion, we discussed how atrial fibrillation is both common in cardiac amyloid and that these patients should be anticoagulated regardless of their CHADS VASC due to a high thromboembolic risk. But I'm remembering your 2019 paper in Jack EP really underlined this point about not using the CHADS VASC in cardiac amyloid patients with AFib. Remind me exactly what you showed? Yeah, Ahmed, I think you hit the nail on the head. AFib is extremely common in patients with amyloid, and the management is challenging. We studied 100 patients with TTO or amyloid undergoing TE prior to cardioversion. Almost 90% of these patients were therapeutically anticoagulated prior to TE. Uh, in this cohort, we identified left atrial appendage thrombus in 30%. There was absolutely no association between CHADS-VAS score and left atrial appendage thrombus. In fact, over 60% of patients with a CHADS-VAS score of 1% had thrombus compared to only 8% of those with a score of six or higher. Jeez, that's actually very concerning as somebody who takes care of these patients, but also beautifully highlights the need for anticoagulation regardless of the CHADS-VAS score in this population. 
Hey, speaking of AFib and cardiac amyloid, didn't you also show a benefit associated with AFib ablation in patients with this problem? Yeah, in our October 2019 Europace paper, we investigated the outcomes of AF ablation in 72 patients with translurating cardiac amyloidosis and AFib. During a follow-up of over three years, only 42% of patients remain free of recurrent arrhythmia. However, when we further stratified this cohort according to TTR stage, we found that 90% of those with stage 3 disease developed recurrent arrhythmia compared to 36% of those with stage 1 or 2 disease. So this is something we've seen time and time again where TTR stage plays a critical role in determining the success of antiarrhythmic strategies. Uh, We found that ablation was associated with a significant reduction in hospitalizations uh, for AF and heart failure in this cohort. Oh, and that's that's really great and so clinically relevant for uh, this patient population. I also enjoyed your paper on device therapy in patients with TTR amyloid. Didn't that also come out this last year? It did, yeah. Uh, We looked at cardiac devices in 78 patients with TTR amyloid. We know that conduction disease is common. Uh, We wanted to assess the impact of ORV pacing uh, on cardiac structure and function in addition to clinical outcomes. We hypothesized that the electromechanical dysynchrony associated with ORV pacing uh, would be associated with poor outcomes in this cohort with small infiltrated ventricles. We found that an ORV pacing burden greater than 40% was associated with worsening ejection fraction, mitral regurgitation severity, and NYHA functional class. We also found that cardiac resynchronization therapy appeared to be effective in those with TTR amyloid and left bundle branch block. Going forward, there may be a role for physiologic pacing in these patients with conduction disease. That's incredible. But Owen, how do you do it? You're a third-year general cardiology fellow here at the Cleveland Clinic, soon to be an EP fellow. Clinically, you're on par. I would trust you implicitly with any of my patients. You have a life outside the hospital, but you've also, at the same time, been tremendously productive academically, performing meaningful research with, I think, what, 15 first author publications? You're an inspiration, and your accomplishments are something to aspire to. Here, at the tail end of your fellowship, what advice do you have for residents and junior fellows? Uh, I tell them, you know, not to party too much and to be nice to their parents. <laughs> Coming from you, I don't know if you took your own <laughs> advice. <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think obviously identifying mentors is crucial. Uh, we're very fortunate here. We have a lot of uh, phenomenal mentors who are very interested in doing research and taking us under their wings. Uh, obviously, it's difficult to get around hard work. Uh, any project you take on is going to involve a lot of hard work uh, and initiative. You know, research isn't for anybody. It's it's everybody. It's important to be honest uh, with yourself, and if it's what you want to do, you know, get stuck in. Yeah, I think finding that passion is so important. Yeah. Oh, and that's uh, that's incredible advice. Thank you again. Uh, so glad we ran into you. Cheers. All right, great to see you, Owen. Zach, what perfect timing. Here's Dr. Kremer's office. Dr. Kremer, I've learned so much from you over the years, and I am just so excited to learn more about multimodality imaging for cardiac amyloidosis today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ahmed. It's it's great to be with you. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Kremer. For our listeners, Dr. Kremer obtained his bachelor's degree from Princeton University and medical degree from Harvard Medical School. He stayed in Boston for internal medicine residency training at MGH, after which he took a two-year detour to work at the Navajo Indian Health Services in Arizona. 
He then moved to Cleveland to complete both general cardiology and advanced cardiovascular imaging fellowships before joining staff in 2017. As faculty, Dr. Kremer has been a rising star. He has been an APD for the cardiology fellowship and is the director of our CCU. He's widely published in cardiovascular imaging and critical care. Beyond his accomplishments, Dr. Kremer is a favorite among fellows, pleasure to be around, and truly a joy to learn from. Excellent. Well, <laughs> thank you for that kind introduction. I wasn't expecting that. I'll have to make sure I, I share this episode with my mom. You know, so can, well, you know, well, well deserved for sure. So uh, let's get to it, Dr. Kremer. In our episode seven, our amyloidosis case discussion episode, we reviewed our algorithm for diagnosing cardiac amyloidosis. The first step, of course, is to build our clinical suspicion before we launch into all of the more advanced diagnostics. What are the features you're looking for on the basic transthoracic echocardiogram to start cluing you into the possibility of cardiac amyloid? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I think to to take a step back when we look at imaging in cardiology, I often think about what's the anatomy and what are the hemodynamic consequences? What's the form? What's the function? And I think if you approach any disease with that framework in mind, it's really helpful as opposed to just memorizing a laundry list of characteristics. So as it relates to cardiac amyloid, so what are we talking about? We're talking about the deposition of amyloid fibrils within the myocardium, okay? And so what anatomic changes does that result in? Well, it results in uh, increased wall thickness of the left ventricle. So that's one of the features you would see. And we used to talk about the starry sky or the speckling appearance of the myocardium related to that infiltration, which you still can see, though I'd say that that is now less reliable that we use uh, routinely harmonic imaging in transthoracic echocardiography. But in addition to infiltration and increased wall thickness of the left ventricle, one of the things that's somewhat unique to cardiac amyloidosis is you often see increased wall thickness of the right ventricle, increased wall thickness of the atrial walls, in particular the interatrial septum. So that can be a clue to think about cardiac amyloidosis if you see thickening of the interatrial septum. Uh, Related to that, cardiac amyloidosis often causes biatrial enlargement, and you often will see a small pericardial effusion. So then secondly, what are the hemodynamic consequences of that infiltration of amyloid? And primarily, it's diastolic heart failure. So what we look for is evidence of diastolic heart failure in an advanced disease that can be characterized by a restrictive filling pattern. Um, So that is prominent diastolic filling during early diastole with very little diastolic filling during the atrial phase related to a stiff heart and also related to atrial dysfunction. We call that a restrictive filling pattern, and that's something that you can characteristically see in late amyloid disease. In addition to that, amyloid seems to initially predominantly involve the base of the heart, uh, which is interesting. Hopefully we can touch on a little bit more. So the first thing that happens as a result of the structural changes related to amyloid infiltration is loss of the longitudinal basal motion. So you can see that in systole and you can see it in in diastole. And that one of the things we look at is tissue Doppler velocities in early diastole are often quite low in amyloid. So that's a broad view of some of the changes in surface echocardiography that should clue us into amyloid. The anatomic changes of increased wall thickness involving the left and right ventricles, the biatrial enlargement, the thickening of the interatrial septum, which results in diastolic heart failure, a restrictive filling pattern, and early basal longitudinal dysfunction of the heart. That's pretty awesome. You know, in our AS episode and HCM episode, we talk about first realizing what the structural problem is, and then defining the hemodynamic consequence. So I love that you brought that into the amyloid discussion also. Yeah, I think you have to anchor yourself that way, and then you can really, you don't have to memorize these things, and then you can just sort of explain through the pathophysiology. 
You know, Dr. Kremer, one of the things that we talk about often with uh, cardiac amyloid and uh, echocardiography is strain imaging. Mm. Um, I was hoping you could, uh, from your perspective, give us an idea of what is strain imaging and how does it help us here? You know, can we differentiate our cardiac amyloid patients from other causes of LVH, things like hypertensive heart disease uh, or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or other infiltrative processes? Yeah, so that's a, another great question, and that is, how are we using one of our more advanced, if you will, echocardiographic features uh, of strain to aid in the diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis? And so when we say strain, we're basically talking about speckle tracking echocardiography. And what is speckle tracking? Well, what it is, is it is speckles that are created at the interface of the myocardium and the ultrasound uh, beam related to interference. And we can think of speckles as little myocardial footprints, okay? And so we have these little footprints, and then we can define a region of interest, and we can look frame to frame how those speckles are, are moving uh, and get a sense of deformation. Uh, and one of the advantages that from a technical perspective is that it tends to be angle independent, unlike a lot of the other uh, assessments we use with ultrasound. So when we say strain, as a general term, we're talking about speckle tracking echocardiography. And um, as you're alluding to, there may be patterns uh, that clue us into cardiac amyloidosis. And in particular, it gets back to uh, what we we're just talking about is that the basal longitudinal function seems to worsen first. Sure. So in cardiac amyloid, if we're talking about a strain pattern, we often talk about an apical sparing pattern right. where there's predominant involvement of the basal segments with apical sparing. So some of that, and I think we still need to learn a lot about the underlying pathophysiology for why that happens, um, but some of it may be related to preferential deposition of, of amyloid in the basal segments, or it just may be that there's more myocardium there, so there's more amyloid there, and that there's a compensatory response in the apex. But it's definitely a pattern that we see uh, in patients with cardiac amyloid. And does it help you to distinguish uh, cardiac amyloidosis from left ventricular hypertrophy related to end-stage renal disease, related to uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, related to other infiltrative cardiomyopathies like glycogen storage diseases? Uh, yes, I think it clues you in, but you're not going to stop there in terms of securing the diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis. You do need further testing, but certainly that's a feature on ECHO that will increase your suspicion uh, for cardiac amyloid. Awesome. You know, I've, I've tried to explain strain imaging so many times, but I feel like I understand it much better now. Yeah. So I'm going to use that analogy for my cardiac footprint. Yeah, th think of it as baby footprints that are really artifactual, but we're able to follow those frame to frame and look at deformation. That's very cool. Now, in addition to echo, especially you have the advantage of being a multimodality imager, which I think can bring things uh, to diagnosing cardiac amyloidosis. How helpful is cardiac MRI and when is the right time to get one? Sure. And it's, again, another very practical question that, that often comes up. And, and again, I think as, as we'll talk about and as should be um, increasingly emphasized, you always want to make sure the patient doesn't have a plasma cell dyscrasia. You know, so that's, that's, you know, we can't emphasize that enough. And so you want to evaluate for light chain amyloid with biochemical testing, serum-free light chain, serum and urine uh, immunofixation. And there's some nuclear testing, which we'll talk upon, which is also helpful. So where does cardiac MRI come into this? Well, I'd say that the advantage of cardiac MRI in general is uh, the characterization of the myocardium and the quantitative data that it provides. So I think if, for example, there's a patient who's 
for whatever reason, the echocardiography is suboptimal due to acoustic windows. The cardiac MRI can be helpful. But in particular, I think cardiac MRI is helpful when you already have a diagnosis of systemic amyloid elsewhere, and you want to see if there's cardiac involvement. And the way you can do that with cardiac MRI is through giving a gadolinium-based contrast, uh, which will reflect uh, fibrosis of the myocardium. And patients with amyloid uh, have a lot of myocardial fibrosis, so we can appreciate that with delayed hyperenhancement. And there's also newer techniques using pre and post contrast T1 mapping to look at extracellular volume, for example. And patients with cardiac uh, amyloid will have increased extracellular volume. So I think uh, in that sense, in terms of the quantification of cardiac function and in terms of characterizing uh, fibrosis and extracellular volume, MRI is fantastic. And there are some uh, sequences that may help to distinguish whether or not a patient has AL amyloid or transthyretin amyloid, but none of those, I would say, are good enough uh, for an individual patient. Sure. Primarily, I I think from a practical perspective where I find MRI most useful is I already know the patient has amyloid, and now I still have a question of whether there's cardiac involvement, and the MR can be very helpful. That's fantastic. So it sounds like it's on the pathway of first building your clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis. And, And thinking through that diagnostic algorithm, we need to differentiate between the two most common precursor proteins to cardiac amyloidosis, of course, light chains in AL amyloid and the transthyretin protein in TTR cardiac amyloid. So our first step is to look for AL with a kappa-lambda ratio and immunofixation studies. And if these are negative and we still have a high index of suspicion for cardiac amyloid, we next move to the nuclear scan to hunt for TTR. So what is this PYP nuclear scan and how does it help us at this juncture? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I just think we can't say it enough that you have to exclude AL amyloid biochemically in all these patients. Um, and then you have an echocardiogram, you have clinical findings, uh, you have an MRI that's suggestive of, of cardiac amyloid, and now you want to hone in on whether there's transthyretin. Well, one of the ways that, or the primary way we do that is through um, bone scintigraphy. Uh, and, and in the U.S., we use an agent called uh, pyrophosphate, so technetium pyrophosphate. Um, in Europe, there's a couple of other agents, but, but the, the principles are the same. And these are agents that have actually been around for decades. Uh, were initially used in patients post-myocardial infarction uh, to diagnose patients who've had uh, MIs. And there was some initial interest in using them to characterize patients with cardiac amyloid, but were not that effective. And that was actually in an era where we weren't as good at distinguishing patients with AL amyloid versus TTR amyloid. But now that now that we can do that biochemically, we have realized that the positivity with technetium pyrophosphate is mostly in patients with transthyretin amyloidosis. So transthyretin, as you probably know, is a tetramer that's a binding protein for retinol, retinol binding protein to transport uh, retinol or thyroid hormone that's synthesized by the liver. The dysfunctional monomers can form amyloid fibrils, which then deposit in the heart. And with uh, technetium pyrophosphate, the agent we use in the U.S., it preferentially binds those fibers. And again, it's not entirely clear why that happens. It's probably related to the calcium content that's different in transthyretin versus AL amyloid fibrils. Um, it may be related to the to the C-terminus of, of some of the fibrils um, that's different. But what we know clinically is that patients with transthyretin amyloidosis often have very positive uh, technetium pyrophosphate scans. So that is that the signal in the heart is equal to or greater than the bone signal. 
Now, AL patients, patients with AL amyloid, can also have positive technetium pyrophosphate scans, but usually the signal is less, is gotcha. less than the, the signal from the bone. So that's right. It has become very helpful once you've excluded AL amyloid and you have a suspicion uh, for TTR amyloid, uh, the technetium pyrophosphate scanning has become, uh, I would say, an invaluable test. I really like that you emphasize that you have to exclude plasma cell dyscrasias and the possibility of AL amyloid in these patients. One of my favorite oncologists at Hopkins, Dr. Ali, who manages plasma cell dyscrasias and is a bone marrow transplant faculty, he tells me about a patient, to underline this very point, a patient who was being managed as a TTR cardiac amyloid patient on the basis of um, a PYP scan, but continued to deteriorate. And so they ended up getting a biopsy, and it turned out the patient actually had AL cardiac amyloid and ended up uh, coming to Dr. Ali's care. And so he, he remembers that just to highlight the point that you have to exclude AL amyloid. And I think what we say to our fellows in sort of language that cardiologists understand is that missing AL amyloid is like missing a myocardial infarction. So you can't, you can't miss <laughs> like those that. patients. Yeah. I like that. So to confirm a diagnosis of AL, if you're suspecting it, you need a biopsy. Tissue is the issue if cancer is the answer, uh, as, uh, as Ahmed and I joke about sometimes. <laughs> so I, I heard that from him, and I actually used that in our amyloid case discussion. So just so everybody knows, that came from Zach. That was me. That was me. <laughs> And I stole, I, like it from, it. I stole it from someone else. So, <laughs> um, Would you feel comfortable diagnosing TTR on the basis of a PYP scan without getting a biopsy? We kind of just touched on it. But if you saw enough uh, of a positive PYP scan, is, is that enough? Yeah, I would say that, that currently the sensitivity and the specificity of technetium pyrophosphate scanning for TTR is good enough that often we can forego an endomyocardial biopsy in this case. So... If a patient uh, has a clinical suspicion for TTR amyloid, and one of the things that we, we should mention clinically, actually, is to look at the disconnect between the voltage on the ECG and the echocardiogram. So when I pull up an echo and the wall thickness is quite increased, I immediately look at the ECG, and the voltage doesn't necessarily have to be low, but if it's normal, it's lower right. than what you would expect given the degree of hypertrophy, that should also raise your suspicion for amyloid. Like a mass voltage mismatch, basically. Absolutely. So I think if you if you have the clinical suspicion, you have the echo that looks like amyloid, and you have a technetium pyrophosphate scan, which showing signal that's equal to or greater than the bone in terms of the heart signal, I think we feel very confident saying that patient has, has TTR amyloid. Now, if the signal is, is less and you still have a clinical suspicion, I think you do need to actually pursue biopsy in some of those patients uh, because now we do have treatment. So, you don't, of course, you don't want to miss TTR amyloid. Um, and and even, even before having uh, specific treatments, there are certain things uh, medication-wise that you don't, mistakes you don't want to make. So, I think that the technetium polyphosphate scan has been extremely helpful in allowing us to make this diagnosis without pursuing endomyocardial biopsy. But I think we have to be wary that the pendulum hasn't swung too far the other way. And that in a patient that even if the technetium prophylate scan is negative, that doesn't necessarily exclude it if you still have a high clinical suspicion. And so some of those patients should still pursue endomyocardial biopsy. That's incredible. So if we have a high clinical suspicion based on their symptoms and the echo and the EKG, possibly an MRI, their their gammopathy workup is negative and their PYP scan is unequivocally positive, then that seems like it's enough to start treating for TTR cardiac amyloid and avoiding a biopsy. That's right. That's fantastic. So Dr. Kramer, I have one last question. I'm curious about your time at the Navajo Indian Health Service. That experience seems to be in contrast with what you do now, which is highly specialized, advanced cardiovascular care at a quaternary care center. I'm sure that your time there helped you become the incredible clinician you are today. Uh, what took you there in the first place, and um, what did you get out of it? 
Well, uh, yeah, thank you for, for highlighting that. I mean, I think that um, it may seem that what I do now as a cardiac imager is very different than what I did as a family medicine or primary care doctor within the Indian Health Service, but, but I think there's a lot of similarities. And, and I think, and it's one of the things I really like about the podcast is because I consider myself an internist first and a cardiologist second. And, and so I, I think that the inquisitive nature, um, trying to get to the diagnosis, uh, trying to take a good history and exam, this is still the core of what it is, even with advanced imaging. Now, the advanced imaging can be a nice, nice tool, but there's a lot of overlap there. And so in terms of what took me there, I had, I had done some rotations as a resident and, and really liked uh, the Indian Health Service and the people there are great, the patients are great. And so it was a, a wonderful uh, opportunity. And I certainly uh, learned a lot uh, in terms of, of being a clinician uh, that will has and will continue to heavily influence me uh, throughout my career. That's so cool. Thank you so much for sharing, Dr. Kramer. Intern is first. Amen to that. <laughs> well, well, Dr. Kramer, this was amazing. We learned so much about multimodality imaging for cardiac amyloidosis. I would not have expected anything less. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareem prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com and please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now, a flutter moment. Hey, cardio nerds. My name's Bree. I'm a cath lab nurse at the Cleveland Clinic. What makes my heart flutter is going home to see my puppy every day. No, no.